0: You would be glorified today that we would have a taste of your glory just by being in the word of your word and that um, our, we you would be glorified and your glory would fall upon us even as, Lord, your word opens our eyes to just wondrous things about you, Lord, how you have a plan that we need not... Be anxious with feelings of uncertainty in this life because we know you've laid it all out. History is his story, your story. And it has yet to be completed, and and your word lays it all out. The future force, as it has the past. We, I pray for your help. Let not me be a hindrance to your word going out today, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So this chapter, Mark chapter 13, is all about Jesus' prophecy of his return, his second coming. 2,000 years ago in his first coming, Jesus came to planet earth, lived about 33 years, was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. That was his first coming. This chapter is about his second coming. I think it's extremely significant the way this chapter begins. It begins with Jesus' disciples talking about the stones on the temple building. I cannot possibly overstate how significant it is that he begins this discussion about his second coming with this conversation about the stones of the temple. Solomon, can you set us up for, for a video? I'm gonna show you a video now, but before we, I show it to you, again in verse one, um, it, the disciples come to him, in the middle of the verse there it says, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said, do you see these great buildings? You think they're great. You think they're a great human accomplishment. Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now that statement, that statement, do you see these stones, not one shall be left upon another would have seen to anyone listening as ridiculous and absurd. Only a madman would have said that at the time why because of the size of the stones that he was talking about when he was pointing at, um, at them i'm going to show you a video now and it's a bit a video about these stones only it's a, just a little a few layers down because as jesus said the stones above were all thrown down and so listen listen carefully this is very significant jesus talking about these stones which he told the disciples would all be thrown, uh, thrown down. They would be cast down. So let's listen. And welcome back to The Watchman. Well, Jerusalem is
1: a roadmap of the Bible. King David, Solomon, the prophets, the Maccabees, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, all of them walked the streets of
0: Jerusalem. And beneath the western wall of the Temple Mount, that biblical history dating back thousands of years comes to life today. I recently had a
1: very special tour of the Western Wall tunnels and it was an unforgettable experience. Take a look. So this is the same Western Wall we can see outside. It's the continuation of it. We're not standing on top of it or beneath it or on the other side of it, just along the same wall but where it's concealed, where it's hidden. If you look over here at the bottom and with your gaze slowly climb up to the top, you will notice different kinds of construction. You're looking at two different periods. 1400 years ago, when the Muslims first came here, they find parts of the wall ruined, destroyed. They decide to renovate. These small stones over here and the larger ones above them, all the way to the top is 1,400 year Muslim renovation. But from here and all the way down to the valley, we're talking about four stories beneath us. This beautiful, symmetric shaped stone with this nice frame around it, aligned so neatly one near each other and one on top of the other, with no cement in between to glue the stones together. We call this dry construction, kind of like Lego. This is 2000 year old Jewish construction So uh, look at me, don't follow me, I want to show you something. From here and all the way, going 40 feet along the western wall, 40 feet, that is longer than a bus, you're looking at the largest stone found in the Temple Mount. It is 12 feet high and 14 feet deep. It weighs close to 600 tons. That's equivalent to like, I would say 200 elephants or if you want it in a modern scale, two airplanes. The big jumbo jet, the transatlantic 747 with the people and the luggage after shopping in Israel. That's heavy, yeah. Um, Two big airplanes, one stone, and the big question is how? How do they carve a stone like this? How do they roll it here? How do they lift it up and place it so accurately? I believe a good question deserves even a better answer. The answer is, we don't know. Physicists, mathematicians, archeologists, engineers, historians today don't know how with the lack of technology they had 2000 years ago, they were able to move something so big. This is a mystery, an enigma. But there is one story I could share with you about the stone. When Titus destroys the city, he sees this big stone as a tactician, as a general, he understands perfectly the symbolic value that the stone has for the Jewish people, for their moral and pride and self-esteem. So you have to try to imagine him telling his soldiers, guys, we need to destroy this because we need to break the Jews not only physically, but also mentally, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. Try to imagine Roman soldiers standing way above us, pushing stones from the wall, down to the marketplace below us, stone after stone, row after row, until they get to this big stone. When they do, they huff, they puff, the stone doesn't budge. They try to break it, they try to destroy it, but luckily for us in the end, instead of them breaking the stone, the stone pretty much broke, broke them, and they left us this amazing 2000-year-old testimony. <laughs> folks you need to take a tour of the western wall tunnels the next time you visit jerusalem coming up my final thoughts on why jerusalem matters
0: to you as a christian it's the watchman it's kufi only right here okay so Again, impossible for me to overstate how important it is that Jesus begins his discussion of his second coming with talking about the stones of the temple being thrown down. Because, although in the foundation some of the stones did survive, which is a blessing for us so that we can see the gravity, the enormity of Jesus' prediction... Most of them were thrown down at the time about 40 years after Jesus, well prior to the writing of this book, the book of Mark, as well as all the, uh, the three first gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus begins, his, uh, begins the whole uh, discourse, his message about his second coming, talking about these stones, and he's saying, all these stones that you see, these stones, they're going to be thrown down. They're going to be thrown down. Kyle, do we have the, the power, PowerPoint of the, um, that we had last week? You guys have the little sheet as well? Uh, Solomon, could you bring me my laser um, as well? If you look here at the very beginning, to, uh, at the bottom on the left, if you have your sheet rather not the um, bottom on the left, on the top right after the first coming of Christ, you see 70 A.D. Jerusalem is destroyed. Jerusalem Jerusalem is uh, destroyed there right that's in 70 AD the romans came in they surrounded the city the 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 jews that were in the city were able to uh, prevent anyone for, from coming in uh, for about a year or something like this all this is in secular history uh, they came in uh, the romans eventually got in they uh, and and they what happened with the temple <clears throat> with the temple was that the same kind of stones that were that were uh, in this wall, the bottom of this wall, the foundation of this wall, which you just saw this man in this tunnel, um, the the stones. Uh, what had happened was the Herod who built the temple, the, the, the temple was made out of gold. Actually, the instructions for the temple in Solomon we, we saw in uh, the book of 1 Kings um, was, was gold. And the whole dome was made out of gold. And when the temple was burned, the gold burned and fell down and seeped in between the rocks. Roman soldiers were paid, among other ways, with whatever they got a hold of when they attacked or took over a city, and and so the, the gold got in between those cracks. Remember, you just heard these stones did not have mortar in between them, and that's why somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, they were fulfilling this, this. Uh, this prophecy of Jesus, they toppled over the stones, gigantic stones, massive stones, the ones that Jesus had said would be thrown down. It is as if Jesus was telling us today, as surely, it's as, it's as if he's telling us, as surely as I predicted that those stones would be thrown down, and they were, I will be coming again. To planet Earth. Are you following me? So the whole chapter is about his second coming, and he's beginning. I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen really soon. This is, by the way, Mark 13 is not the only place he predicts Jerusalem would be flattened. It's also at the end of the book of Luke. And, and, uh, and he's weeping as he's telling Jerusalem, you are going to be uh, destroyed. You're going to be flattened by the armies because you didn't know the day of your visitation from the Son of God. And, and so he's, he, he, that's how he begins. And so then in verses 5 through 22, th- verses 5 through 22, Jesus goes on to describe... Nine signs that will come in the time leading up to his final return to planet Earth. We discussed those signs a few weeks ago. We also discussed them real briefly last week. Um, If you see, here's the signs. If you see number eight is the Antichrist would defile the Jewish temple. That's the sign that Jesus talked about. Anyone have a problem with that? How's that going to happen if the temple's destroyed? Jesus started off by telling it um, it would be destroyed. Uh, What do you mean prior to your return? That um, the Antichrist is going to go into uh, the temple. Um, Actually... Go down to verse 14. Let's read it. Um, he, we talked about this last week and uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Jesus says, one of the signs that you're going to see prior to my t- return, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in, uh, by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. In the book of Matthew, it says this, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy, pre- holy place, meaning the Antichrist is gonna come into the holy place, into the Jewish temple. And so Jesus is saying here, what he's conveying very clearly is prior to his return, there's gonna be another Jewish temple. Now, how can there be another Jewish temple unless Israel as a nation exists in the first place? The problem is, again, I can't hardly overstate the importance of this statement by Jesus because for 2,000 years, there was no Israel. At 70 AD, the Romans came in, destroyed the city. A million Jews were killed. Many hundreds of thousands of others were sent into slavery. They dispersed to um, all over the world for, uh, after 70 AD. A- 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 Listen to this. In the year 1500, there were only 5,000 Jews in all of Palestine, that entire area, now known as the uh, nation of Israel. In the year 1700, there was only 2,000 Jews, about 1% of the population. In the year 1800, there were somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000, still a tiny percentage. But in the late 1800s, the Lord began to stir his people from all around the world to return to the, uh, to the land. By 1948, there were 768,000 Jews, 82% of the population. How does that happen? It had never happened in the history of the world. There's never been anything remotely close to, to the fulfillment of what Jesus uh, uh, predicted here for the Jews in any other ethnic group who had been dispersed all over the world. Usually it just takes a couple of generations. There is no more ethnic group. But that's not what happened to the, uh, to the Jews. They were dispersed, and 1,900 years later, the Lord starts to stir them to return to his land. And in 1948, 82% of the population is now Jewish. It had been controlled by Muslims since the middle of the 600s, except for a very brief time, and, and where it came under Christian, Christian control, but that was very, very brief during the Crusades. And, and, and then all, by again, the year 1700, there's just 2,000 Jews left And then in 1948, they became a nation. Against all odds, they became a nation again. They were reestablished in their homeland after 2,000 years. All of which fulfills very specific prophecy in the land. uh, Rather, in the Bible. Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verse 11 says this. It shall be. This is written 500 years, uh, rather 750 years before Jesus was, uh, uh, before Jesus was born, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnants of his people who are left. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So notice it says the second time. You students of the Bible know the first time was when? About 600 years before Jesus' birth, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and flattened Jerusalem again because of the rebellion of the Jewish people. They were a rebellious people. And they had turned to other gods. The prophet warns them, don't do this. Or you'll be you'll be destroyed and exiled to another country. It happened, but for 70 years later... 70 years after they left, they came back. That was the first time. But Isaiah says, no, there's gonna be a second time. It shall come to pass on that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover. From the four corners of the earth. Well, listen to this, though. uh, Look at this one, Isaiah 27, verse six. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And then the next one I have here in Ezekiel, again, well before Jesus' time, they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Listen, history is really, really clear (laughs) that in the middle of the 1800s, the whole area of Palestine practically was desolate, completely desolate. Mark Twain, how many of you know Mark Twain? Come on, Mark Twain, one of the most famous American authors, traveled there in 1867. He wrote in his diary, Mark Twain did, there was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Can we have that uh, again? It was desolate. Even the olive and the cactus, whose fast friends of a worthless soil had almost deserted that country. No landscape existed that is more tiresome to the eye than that which is in the approaches to Jerusalem. He also wrote, of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, Palestine must be the prince. This is in 1867. Can the curse of the deity Beautify a land? Can can even God recover this land? Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. This is Mark Twain right in 1867. Over Palestine broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Well, let me tell you, after 1948, Israel is um, established as a nation. The Lord prospers them exceedingly abundantly. As of 2016, Israel exported fruit to 90 countries. Can we have the previous uh, one, Caillou? Israel exported, as of 2019, again, this prophecy said Israel shall shall blossom and fill the face of the world with fruit. In, again, in 2016, it was exporting fruit to 90 countries. In 2020, it exported $354 million of um, tropical fruit, the eighth largest exporter of tropical fruit in the world. Let me tell you when the Bible has a promise, has a prophecy, it is sure to happen. But again, the point being here that I'm trying to make, that again, it's as if Jesus is saying in Mark 13, as unlikely as it may seem to you that I'm coming back, it will certainly happen just as these stones will be thrown down and just as Israel will be regathered into a country. Jesus Christ is unlikely as that may seem to us with our rational minds in America in 2000. 22 it's gonna happen as surely as those stones were thrown down as surely as the impossibility of israel being regathering the second coming of christ the bible scholars have identified 1845 references in the bible to jesus second coming So as I was praying about what to do today in this, our final study about his second coming, I just really felt I wanted to do something different. You know, usually I just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I, I, what I want to do today, given the enormity of the importance of this subject, the sheer volume of Bible verses dedicated to this return, I, I just want to take a, a step back and talk about why. Why the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why? What's the purpose of it? I mean, it's got to be true. There's got to be some purpose, right? Otherwise, why is there so much written about it? Why is the last book of the Bible about it? Why is there so much? What be- what purpose does it serve, the second coming? So that's where I want to go. And the answer the answer starts at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis in fact it's the very beginning of the book of Genesis in the creation story where it says this it says so God Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and 8 God created human beings in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and then it says then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. So this is prior to sin, prior to man falling. This is God's heart. He was to bless man. His his heart, by the way, is to bless you. (laughs) It's to bless you. That's his heart. The question is, are you in a place? Have you made... Have you been reconciled with God, putting him in a position that he can even do that? But his, his heart is to bless you. But this is it. And then he said, fill the earth and govern it. Govern it meaning, enjoy the earth. Uh, I, he, I, what he's saying is, I love you, I want to bless you. Here's the world, be blessed by it. Go, govern it, I'm putting you in charge. Go and enjoy. Enjoy anything you want, enjoy. Eat, how can we enjoy life without eating? Eat, he talks about eating in these, uh, this uh, uh, second chapter. Eat my, any fruit of any tree that I have made. Eat it. Except there's one fruit in the middle of the garden. Chapter two, verse 17 of Genesis. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one, just that one. But other than that, Eat, go, govern, and enjoy. Enjoy! That's God's heart for you. It's God's heart for me. But then, after that, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, Satan, came to Eve and Adam. Adam was by her side, by the way, in case you didn't know. He came to, to, to Eve, Satan did with Adam by her side, and he tempted her to do the one thing, apparently the only thing that God told her not to do. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter three, verse three, Eve said to Satan, no, no, we can't do that. And Satan told her, God told you not to do that only because you will be like God if you eat that fruit. She was like, oh man, to be like God. Can you imagine that? To be like God. Wow. And she ate it. Then Adam Adam did too. I don't don't want God to be my God. I want to be God. That's what sin is, Calvary Chapel. That's what you inherited from your parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. I want to be like God. I want to be God. I want to be making the decisions for my life supremely. Sin says, I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. But with sin came God's judgment and with sin just incredibly devastating consequences because God's a holy God. He's holy. He's a holy and righteous God. So so there was a curse put on man. There was indescribably devastating uh, consequences. Sin ran its course through man's physical body. He began to physically die. Many of you are in pain today or have some disease, or some disability. It originated with man rebelling against God. But also sin ran its course through all man's relationships. Mainly sin destroyed three things, if you're taking notes. Sin destroyed three relationships. His relationship with God, his relationship with man, and his relationship with the earth. Sin destroyed man's relationship with God. What happened in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8? After he sinned, what did man do? He hid Adam and Eve. They hid from God. In other words, man's relationship with God began to be characterized by fear fear of God, thinking he's a slave master, thinking he's ugly and nasty. Not only fear, but also anger and rebellion. Exodus chapter five, verse two. I, I just love this verse because this is what it's in our heart. This is Pharaoh speaking to Moses. Who's the Lord that I should obey him? So not only fear, but anger in and rebellion. So man's primary, ultimate source of joy, God destroyed because of the rebellion in our hearts. Sin destroyed also man's relationship with man. So first it destroyed man's, sin ran its course through every relationship, man's relationship with God, but also man's relationship with man. Within one generation of Adam and Eve, man was murdering each other. Cain killed Adam, rather Cain killed um, Abel in Genesis 4, 8. Not too long after that, war was introduced. War! Literally hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of men killing other men on a single day, not unusual, for tens of thousands to be killed in one day. Sin destroyed man's relationship with man. It also destroyed sin's, um, sin destroyed man's relationship with the earth. We've already seen sin, in the book of Isaiah already how earth that was made to be abundant with, uh, with fruit was made desolate as a desert in the book of Romans it says all creation uh, we're speaking of trees rivers oceans meadows mountains the sky all creations in Romans chapter uh, all creation in Romans chapter 8 says groans it's groaning it's it, it's it's waiting for for the redemption it's just it's it's not operating just crazy hurricanes tsunamis earthquakes okay. it's it's groaning the 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 bible says sin destroyed man's relationship with god with man and with the earth I think today just a little further on how sin has destroyed man's relationship with man. I mean, you think just having to travel. Some of you are on a plane this week. You know about this. You have to sit in security in long lines. Where x-ray machines look at every single nook and cranny to see if there's some weapon. I think of the money spent on security at home with alarms and locks, 24-hour 24 security, 24 security from police forces, the billions of dollars spent on that, so much fear in so many places, even in our own homes, fear. Man's relationship with man has been destroyed by sin. In the year 2019, the United States, the United States spent six hundred and eighty-six. dollars Billion dollars on the military for weapons of war, humans and machines. That's well over half a trillion dollars in one year. (coughs) There are currently on planet Earth 40 ongoing wars, defined as at least 100 deaths in a year. 40 wars right now. Sin. Running its course through every relationship. And I've only spoken about physical violence, never mind the sexual violence and sexual misconduct that has resulted in absolute ruin and havoc, even on this city. Just absolute havoc in this city that that, that 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 has created children without a father, the divorce because of sexual immorality, just the stripping away of a soul. soul sex was um, created as a beautiful thing from God, a blessing from God. But when man or woman goes from partner to partner to partner, a, a piece of their soul is being stripped away every time. And they're being sold into a life of, of, of lack of trust and depression because of doing that. So much depression relates right back to the, 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 the sexual bed. But here's what's really important. So important. We're in the middle of all this talking about how sin runs its course and all this is going on right now. 40 active wars. Kids running around the city without a a parent. Without a father, without a mother. The Bible says this. Numbers chapter 14 verse 2 as God is looking at it all this this is God speaking but truly as I live all the earth Shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It is a spectacularly important verse. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The significance of this, Numbers chapter 14, 21, is God says this right after an outrageous rebellion. By the Jews in the wilderness so They had just been, uh, been delivered by God from slavery And now they're uh, wanting to go back and kill Moses and God says I'm going to wipe them out Moses intercedes and says no he, says, he relents but he says But I'm just telling you and he say, I'm just telling you As surely as I live All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord One day the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord in other words, God's not just going to sit back indefinitely and let men's sin run its course of destruction forever and frustrate and ruin God's plan for creating the earth, was, which was to what? To fill it with his glory. No, he initiated a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, he Actually, Genesis chapter 12, he, he initiated two plans of redemption, both plans sort of intertwined, interlocked with each other. One plan of redemption was for the individual, for man, for woman, for you and your sin and the, 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 your sin that has destroyed your relationship with God to bring you back into the place of glory with God. That's redemption plan number one, interlocked with it was another plan of redemption for the world to redeem it, to bring it back to the place that where the world, the whole world, would glorify God, every person, every nation, every government, every creature, animal, bird, and fish, everything, sky, land, ocean, tree, plant, everything, everybody, all operating with each other, glorified, glorifying the Lord unhindered by sin. He had a plan. To do that, he initiated, actually, before he even created the world. It's all planned out. Genesis chapter 12, God, rather than initiating a plan of judgment as he did with Noah in Genesis chapter six, he initiated a plan of salvation, of redemption. He called a man named Abraham. He told him to leave his family, leave his city, and, and um leave his city, all of whom were in rebellion to God. Even Abraham was living in rebellion to God. And God told him, in your seed, in your descendant, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, this is what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 12, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this culminated, I hope you're still with me, in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Like 1500 years later, the first coming of Jesus Christ, where he sent his only begotten son, son, who fulfilled the first plan of redemption, dealing with your sin, your sin which otherwise would have condemned you justly to eternal judgment. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, spectacular little. Third of a verse here, it says Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. Oh, this is such a great verse. You see, you look at it. I don't know exactly what that means, but that looks good. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, meaning Jesus destroyed sin's devastating consequences in your life, which are death and eternal judgment in hell. You deserve that. I deserve that because of our sin. But Christ condemned sin in the flesh by taking your sin upon himself on the cross, receiving in himself on the cross the consequence of your sin, that consequence, death and hell. He suffered death and hell in your place and by that death and by his resurrection three days later, you are saved by trusting in him and you enter into an eternal Relationship with him, which begins the very moment you put your trust in him. Since at that point, the Holy Spirit comes in and occupies your life. But here's the deal. And we'll get to Mark 13 really quick. But here's the deal. Jesus' first coming in which he deals with that first plan of redemption, in which he came to destroy that sin problem that you have that destroyed your relationship with God, it was thoroughly predicted in the Old Testament. Most of you know this. It was so thoroughly and utterly predicted that he would be coming to deal with you, to condemn your sin in the flesh. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says this, of Jesus Christ. This is written 750 years before Jesus' birth, it says he, will, he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus Christ was pierced. A nail in his left hand, his right hand, and his feet, for, and, and in his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. Was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. It, the first coming was, and what was the, the plan of the redemption being fulfilled in the first coming was thoroughly predicted in the Old Testament. Many more from where that came from. But listen, there are many more prophecy prophecies of his second return. His second return, many more. Again, if scholars have counted eight. Prophecies in the Old Testament about his second coming per one prophecy regarding his first coming. And again, the two plans of redemption are wrapped up in, a, in each other, but, but, but the second plan of redemption is what? To bring the world back to the place where the whole world would glorify God, everything and everybody, all operating with each other, glorifying God unhindered by sin. So here we go. I'm just going to give you a few verses. This is the... Old Testament prophecy. This is Jeremiah chapter 23, verse five. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David, David meaning the, the, the first king in the messianic line of kings in Jerusalem, a righteous branch, the word branch in the Hebrew, it's not sir. The, the Bible says that Jesus was a Nazarene, a Nazarene. That's one of the prophecies. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first time he came, he didn't reign as king in the land. That's, this is the second coming it's talking about here. Next prophecy. And there's many, and, I, uh, it, and, and so here you go. We'll, we'll do it in English, and then after this we'll put it in Spanish. But in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established at the highest of the mountains. So again, here's a prediction of the rebuilding of the temple. It says in the last days, meaning at the end of this age. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion. Meaning Jesus, this is a, this is a prophecy of J- uh, Jerusalem once again, actually, not once again, for the first time, becoming the seat of government for the whole world. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, Jesus, will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. That did not happen in his first coming. This is a prediction of his second coming. Again, it says, he, Jesus, will judge between many peoples, will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, meaning their swords they will no longer be using them because at this time when Jesus return, there will, he will bring peace. We will have glorified bodies. There's no longer gonna be hurt on his holy mount. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hook. Pruning hook is what you prune a tree with and it makes the, uh, the tree grow more fruit. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Did you see that? Nor will they train for war anymore. Did you see that? Nor will they train for war anymore after Jesus' coming. In other words, the military budget of the United States will go from $686 billion to zero. The world will go from 40 active wars to no active wars. Wars that are occurring right now causing indescribable pain. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 says of Jesus' second coming, they shall not hurt nor destroy, destroy in all my um, holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the w- uh, Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, man will not be hurting man. Man will not be hurting woman. Woman will not be hurting woman. The ravages that result from sexual sin will be over. No more divorce, no more kids growing up without fathers, no more abortion, no more adultery, no more por- pornography, no more sex, no more sex trafficking. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. No more rich ripping off the poor. No more government officials growing rich off of, of corruption. Um, again, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the word uh, of, the, of the Lord. That word knowledge, really important. I know, I know I'm like given a lot of information here. This is so important. That word knowledge, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the word Lord, speaking of what's going to happen upon Jesus' return and during his kingdom. It's the Hebrew word, the root word is yada. Many of you have heard me say this before. That's not knowledge of facts about God. Some of you here today, you you know the facts about God, you know that he came to Bethlehem. You know that he died on a cross. You know that he was raised. For, you know facts about him, but you don't know him. That's not talking, that, that's not this Hebrew word. This, this Hebrew word is the word, root word yada Genesis chapter four, verse one. Adam knew yada Eve and Cain was born. It's that kind of intimacy. And it says the whole world Will be filled with the knowledge. we Will have that relationship um, with the Lord. So much, and, and, and so so much emphasis on on that. that so all, the, in other words, all the depression, the anxiety, the despair. Some of you are in today. It will be gone because the the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the world, um, knowledge of the Lord, as waters cover the sea. Last verse, Psalm 22, verse 27, which is a psalm, by the way, that also predicts his first coming. This here it talks about his second coming. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That did not happen in his first coming. This is about Jesus' second coming. So there you have it. Why is there so much emphasis on the second coming in the Bible of Jesus Christ? Why does Jesus spend a whole chapter on it in Mark chapter 13? Matthew 24, Luke 21, the whole book of Revelation. Because it fulfills God's plan of redemption and plan of salvation for the whole planet. (laughs) And so, if you have, um, if, you ca- if I could get the PowerPoint, if you have those little pieces of, of paper, again, looking here, Jesus comes back. You see to the right on the top, he comes with his church, he comes and establishes a kingdom. The Bible says that there will then be a thousand year reign under the conditions that we just read about no war. No hurt on no hurt or pain in God's earth. Jesus himself ruling. It's gonna be it's gonna be a time where and, and, and think about it, does it make any sense at all that God would just create the world in Genesis? Shortly after He does, men and women sin, sin wreaks havoc on the world, and the world is never restored to what God's original purpose was. You follow me? It makes no sense at all to me. That there's just this tiny brief period where the world is glorified in the way that God created, created it to be. It makes no sense. No, what does make sense is Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, and God saying, looking at all the sin, looking at the sin wreaking havoc, he's saying, listen, I see this. I see this. I see the sin. But a truly but, but truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So back in Mark chapter 13, if you could open it up with me. And if you could go all the way to verse 31. This is Jesus concluding a description of, of this seven year period. Could we get the PowerPoint up, Caillou? The seven year period, right there in the middle where it says the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus in Mark 13 is describing all the events that happen during that time. And he, he concludes, and actually go back to verse 28. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. So that word now, it's like he's stepping back and and saying, okay, now I'm gonna wrap this up. And he says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the onset, the beginning of, of all these signs that he has just described in Mark chapter 13. He says, of of, of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor nor the Son, but only the Father. So the rapture will occur, meaning God's church taken up, where it says the second coming of Christ, look to the top left, Jesus comes for his church, The children of God are not appointed for wrath, the Bible says. And what should our response, of of the day and hour, no one knows. Verse 33, it says, take heed. So what's our our response to all this that we've been in today? Why all this time? What's our response? We're not just supposed to read the Bible for us, oh wow, this is really interesting. Jesus returned, oh that's great there's a grave response that we are required to have. It says in verse 33, this is what our response should be. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the, time, uh, when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Verse 35, watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, in the, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch so Kyle could we get those nine signs up again so in Mark chapter 13 again Jesus describing these nine signs and what he's saying he's saying listen watch pray you don't know when the time's gonna come when all this is gonna uh, start it's gonna start at the rapture of the church and he mentions a word four times verse 33 watch verse 34 watch verse 35 watch Watch, verse 37, watch. What does that mean? What does that mean to watch? <laughs> As we conclude now, I think that the, the best way that I can describe what it means, and, and if the worship team actually could come up right now. It's in Ephesians chapter five. This is, this verse, these verses sort of describe um, what it means to watch. In Ephesians chapter five, verse fifteen through seventeen, it says, "Be very careful then how you live." Just let's do business now, Calvary Chapel. Can can everyone can everyone look at me right now? Please look at me. Are you being very careful? Not just careful. It says very careful. Are you being very careful how you live? This is. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus is the word of God. So although this is in Ephesians, be very careful how you live. Life is a serious thing. That's what watch means. Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Meaning making the most of your life. Look at me again. And by the way, I'm looking at myself somehow. (laughs) Are you making the most of your life? Jesus is coming again. He's saying, watch, 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 live very carefully. And then he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's why we're in the Bible, to understand what's the will of the Lord and to pray to him about it and to ask him for grace and mercy to live it. Look at me now, again, one more time. Are you living a foolish life? Are you being foolish? Are you living very carefully? And this is, by the way, it's not talking about we walk around. The Bible says that a Christian walking in the spirit is filled with joy from day to day to day to day. It's our privilege. Jesus says, I tell you all these words so that you can have my joy. No, but... You can have joy and be living very carefully. I'm going to ask the prayer partners to to come up at this time. Jesus says, watch, 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 watch. Live very carefully, live very carefully, live very carefully, live very carefully. If you have never in your life said to the Lord and trusted in what he did. Remember what the first plan of redemption is, he came to live for you, to die for you for all to to experience the consequences of his sin of your sin rather. He didn't sin, he was sinless. To experience the consequences of your sin, he experienced them on the cross. You should have been on the cross. You weren't. He was for you. But the Bible says you only get the benefit of that if you put your trust in him, meaning you rip open your heart and say to the Lord, I'm done with being God of my own life. I'm going to let you be God. I understand what you did for me, Lord Jesus. Come and take over. If you've never done that, come up. It's a simple prayer of faith. You don't enter into a relationship by Jesus by accumulating good works because the Bible says all our good works compared to who God is are like filthy rags. It says that in the book of Isaiah, I think chapter 64. Or if you're honest with yourself, you're thinking about Jesus' return, Many verses, by the way, say in light of his imminent return, we need to live soberly. We need to live carefully. We need to live a holy life. And you're like, no, I haven't been living very carefully. And you just like prayer for the grace of God to watch, to live carefully in light of Jesus' return, in light of what he wants to do in your life. Or if you want to pray about anything else, come up as we worship. Please stand. Father, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for what it's done to my heart. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue doing that work, Lord. As we talked about last week, Lord, thinking about your return stirs up either a terror or a love for you. Father, I I pray for those who are not in Christ that it would indeed be a terror. And that they would come to you and give their lives and hearts and souls and minds to you. But, if it, but Lord, for the rest here, I pray, Father, would just do that perfect work of stirring up love. You told us that's the most important thing, Lord, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now that we would be loving you during our worship time, in Jesus' name.